Hi, my name is Eliane Goldstein, and you're listening to The Effect on Us. When I went downstairs to play with the kids with whom I'd played all my life, all of a sudden they're calling me a dirty little Jew and to walk in the sidewalk where I belonged. I had the courage to say, I have to get out. I was just so infused with the will to live that I said, I don't mind leaving my parents. Do you experience any pain from what they would do? Every single second of my life, and I will for the rest of my life. The Effect on Us podcast. Here's Eliane Goldstein. The Effect on Us is a podcast for people of all ages to learn about controversial subjects and the ties it has to people nowadays. In this season, the focus of the series is the Holocaust. You'll be able to hear some of the best survival stories I've ever heard from people that went through the Second World War and learn more about the effect the Holocaust had on people from Generation 1 to Generation 3. Did you know that a survey shows that out of 1,100 Canadians, 8% of those people think that they should be allowed to use the Nazi slogans or symbols? In this episode, I'm talking to Rose Gelbart, who tells me how she and her mother escaped the ghetto. What is your name? Rose Gelbart. How old are you now? 86. When and where were you born? I was born in um, January 3, 1935. In Poland. Where in Poland? Uh, Leszno. Can you tell me about your family before the war? Were you no, well I was the only one. I was born in Leszno to a, uh, a middle-class family. Leszno was one of the uh, uh, beautiful little towns near near uh, Poznan, Posen, and was like 30 kilometers from there, something like that. And uh, Posen was a, a belonged to Germany once. It would belong to Polish, Polish again. And then during the Holocaust, the uh, Germans, as soon as they invaded Poland, they they annexed uh, Poznań to them, to uh, Germany, and so and Leszno. So uh, my parents, my father had a store of children's and women's shoes, and uh, a retail store. And my mother was an entrepreneur. And uh, so when I was born, I was about two years old. They also was very famous for for a yeshiva that they came from Germany, from all over to this little town, uh, to uh, the yeshiva. So it was a very famous yeshiva in that town. But uh, when I was about two, they moved to Kalish, which was a beautiful city also nearby. But it was a magnificent city uh, with parks and lakes and opera house and and uh, about 18,000 Jews lived there. It was the first Jewish cycling group and uh, of and Maccabees. The first Maccabee group was in college. Young young people. They're beautiful young people. And the town was known for uh, certain factories of lace and uh, velvet. And also, uh, there was a factory that refinished uh, pianos, and they sent them from all over Europe there. So it was, my parents started, uh, rented a beautiful apartment and uh, uh, in a mixed neighborhood, mostly Polish. And uh, they just set up and uh, with uh, uh, fixed up the apartment beautifully, and it was very large. And when the, my father started manufacturing shoes and my mother would travel to 
various nearby cities to take orders on the samples. And 1939, we were all running when the Germans were advancing and the Poles were trying to fight to fight uh, uh, a, a battle, a raging battle was going on between the Germans and the Poles. But uh, before long, Poles, the Polish army uh, capitulated, gave up, and uh, all the uh, while they were fighting, uh, all the, the all the inhabitants of the cities and nearby cities were running away, hoping that uh, the war will be over soon. And uh, instead, it took a few hours, and the Polish army gave up, and uh, the Germans occupied that part of Poland. But they came from different directions, but being that Posen and, uh, was close, was once uh, German uh, in previous years, so they came from that direction. And I remember running from the, the planes overhead, and uh, they were bombing everyone on the road, and we were all running in different directions. And that I remember. And as soon as it quieted down and the, they uh, um, marched into Poland, uh, we came back to our home. And as soon as I fell asleep, my father picked me up in his arms. That was 19, September 1939. And uh, still in warm in my pajamas, I was happy to be back in my own bedroom after the scary uh, uh, bombing of where we were running away from uh, the invaded, the invading uh, Germans. And um, they were bombing everything and everyone on the road. And my uncle threw me into the uh, ditch with him and covered me with his body. And I was on the film. I was saying how I looked up, not knowing what was going on. I was about three and a half. It was shortly after my third birthday. And I looked up and I saw these gigantic planes overhead. I didn't know what it was, except that it was an awful lot of panic and people screaming and and animals, and uh, uh, everything and everyone was bombed on the road. So as soon as we came back to our home, we thought it was over, and the Germans will take over, but it'll be peace. Instead, uh, shortly after they came in, knocked on our doors, everyone, the building was, we were the only Jews in the building, so they knocked on the door, pounded on the door because the neighbors told them, yes, there's a Jewish family living in that apartment. And when my mother opened the door, she was so beautiful, blonde, blue eyed, and they thought they made a mistake. So they left. And a few minutes later, they confirmed, the neighbors confirmed that we are Jewish. So they gave us 15 to 20 minutes to pack up only what we could carry and uh, come to the square where already the SS was sitting and taking names and transporting people to the various ghettos where they were going to establish the ghettos. But Kalish was not going to be part of it because they wanted to annex it to Germany. It's a very historic city. Kalish was an extremely historic city. It goes back to the Romans. And burned down several times, was rebuilt, and so on. 
And uh, so I remember my father, a few only a few episodes of, of my father, and I remember him taking me from my bed, still asleep, and I was holding onto his uh, neck and head, and his body was warm against mine. And uh, it, it was a September warm, warm day. And as he carried me to my grandparents' home, I didn't know where or what, because I was half asleep. And as soon as we came into my grandparents' home, my aunts and my uncle and my grandparents were already in their apartment. They lived in a, in a uh, more orthodox area of Kalish, where they were close to the temples, synagogues, and butchers and store kosher stores. So, um, and they have a very small little apartment, but everyone didn't know what what's going to happen. So the the whole family gathered in my grandparents' home. So my father dropped me off, and as soon as I came in, I saw my little cousin, who we were like twins. She was a little bit younger than I, but she was beautiful, and they used to wheel us to the park together and dress us alike. And I remember looking at her, and I saw myself. But uh, uh, so when I came in, and my father left, the family looked up and they saw me, and I looked at Belusha because she was already jumping on the bed, and we were so happy to see each other that we were both jumping on the bed, my grandparents' bed. It was one room where the kitchen and the bed was all in one, and the dining room was all in one room. So it was quite different than where we lived. But anyway, so as soon as we started jumping, there was a huge knock on the door. And they shouted in German, open up. My uncle opened up the door and everybody froze because three German uh, soldiers were standing there with huge rifles that at the time seemed like they were six foot tall, long and pointing them at us and shouting orders in 15 to 20 minutes to carry only what you can carry and report to the square. And from then on, I was so, I must have been so scared that I lost my memory. And I don't remember anything else except when I woke up, we were, we, my parents took a train to Warsaw they established like a, a this square they, where the horses used to uh, uh, be stables and the marketplace. Once a week, there used to be a marketplace and people came and sold their wares on the, around there. So they established like a ghetto, temporary ghetto. There was no food, no water. It was hot. And they, they all the people with their little things that they could carry would, would uh, bring to their place and they would be behind wires and uh, stables. And, uh, but my mother and father were the first ones there, so they wanted to go to Warsaw where I had my aunt and my little cousins there, which I didn't know. But that's where we wound up in, the, in Warsaw, just before the ghetto was closed. And my mother and father worked. They got a job. And there was the, all that panic in Warsaw where nobody knew what was happening because everyone was transported from in the Warsaw uh, city to, a, to a, uh, a little area that later had about 300,000 Jews. 
And we don't, I don't want to go into what happened in the ghetto because I was not there, but everybody knows what, what was happening, the starvation and the typhus and uh, epidemic. But luckily, my mother got a letter from my grandparents and my aunts and uncles who were together sent to Jeshu. They knew where the ghettos are going to be formed, but they knew that college was going to be unified. The first thing they did is they went into the old age home and shipped the uh, uh, old people, put them on black vans, and nobody knew. The family didn't know where their parents were going, but they took them outside of the city and they guessed them immediately. And they the uh, vans came back with their clothing, so they realized what was happening. So that was the beginning. They were cleansing the Kalish from all the Jews and shipping everyone out. And uh, so when my mother got a letter from my grandfather that he was sick, she approached the German in charge of the Warsaw uh, ghetto, which was not closed in yet. It was in 1940, uh, showing him a letter that, that my, pa, my grandfather was sick and she wanted to, we should join him, and he gave us a pass. I don't remember any of it, but like I said, when my when the German soldiers came in pointing their guns and shouting at at um, in my grandparents' apartment, uh, I, I kind of went into a freeze where I didn't remember any of the rights, any of the things in Warsaw, and any of the rights, and not the train ride that took us eight hours to go to Zeshov, but as soon as we came to Zeshov and we were reunited with my grandparents and my aunts and little Belusha, I woke up. And since then, I remembered a lot of the happenings, what happened in Zeshov when the ghetto was finally closed in 19, April 1941. By that time, my grandparents both died of uh, natural causes and were buried uh, in uh, in the Jewish cemetery in Jeshuv. It was called the Rice Hall because, again, Jeshuv had 18,000 Jews, just like uh, Kalish did, and prominent yeshivas and prominent uh, Jewish education. Uh, and uh, till today, a lot of the Israeli rabbis and, and, and uh, Orthodox come there to pray to the rabbi, to the uh, Caver, which is the monument of the famous rabbis. Uh, so that's where my grandparents were buried. In 1941, they separated us again. They, uh, they made it, first of all, they squeezed us into apartments in a Jewish area where all the Jews lived. So we were not, we were the, the people that came from different cities. We didn't know them didn't like us because they had to share their places with us and their part, their food, which was beginning more and more scarce and we came with nothing. So my aunt, my three, my uncle just married a woman from Lodge and they had uh, uh, a little baby in 1940. And my uh, two aunts who were designers, seamstresses, and... Uh, uh, they uh, uh, they lit, they were together with Belusha because one was not married, the other one was married with a little 
my little cousin and her husband in 1939 ran away to Russia. We never heard of him because a lot of the ones that were running away, they were either killed by the Russians or the Germans. And uh, so uh, Belusha and her mother and my, her, my mother's other sister lived together. So when the ghetto was formed, they encircled the whole Jewish area where the Jews used to live and made that into a ghetto. But they divided the ghetto into two. Uh, the ones that had a pass, because everyone that came to that came into the city, who was sent or came like us uh, to join our family, uh, we had to work. They had to work. So the first thing when the, the Jewish committee was established, they and the Jewish police, they asked people what kind of trades they had. And so my father told them he was a shoemaker, so they gave him a pass. And my mother uh, told him that she was a, a, a saleswoman, I don't know, whatever, but she got a pass to work too. And uh, my aunts were separated because they didn't have husbands, so they separated into ghetto B. So there was a ghetto A and B, the ones that had the pass to work. My uncle was a locksmith, so he and his wife and baby were also in ghetto A uh, because he was a locksmith and he worked for the Gestapo to uh, to close to make um, uh, keys to uh, lock the 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 uh, crates that they sent to Germany with all the looting that. They did that. Uh, my uncle said once he opened up and he was blinded by the by the silver and the gold and the jewelry that they confiscated from everyone. So nobody had anything. And uh, and my aunts were in ghetto B, which was the women without husbands, uh, children, and the elderly, and didn't have a pass to work. Even though they were seamstresses, they were not needed to work for the Germans. And so from then on, uh, the ghetto was ghetto A or ghetto B uh, was separated by uh, gates. And we were not allowed to go and visit our aunts. They were not allowed to come and visit us. So in ghetto A, there was only my uncle, his wife and baby, and my mother and I and uh, my father. They both, the, 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 the man worked for the Gestapo headquarters, and uh, um, we were home. But my mother got a job on the outside of the ghetto to work for a, uh, to build, to prepare the roads for, uh, to build roads uh, underneath whatever that was, underneath the, the building the roads, they had to, to put the pipes. I think she was working with the pipes. And so every morning at five o'clock, they marched them out with a, of course, with the police marching beside them until they arrived at the jobs and they were watched. And they had a, there was the overseer was a very nice man who uh, told my mother if she ever needed help, he would help her. And he was a Volkswagen, which was a, uh, during when he lived in Poland, he was Polish, but when the Germans occupied, he was German. 
uh, and he was an engineer. And he told my mother, if you ever need help, I think I said that, uh, come, you know, I'll help you. So sometimes she would march me with her group to work and he would give me a little ration of bread or a cookie or whatever. And I would help my mother. But one day my aunt, they had like, uh, in the ghetto a, which was the working camp, they started eliminating the people and, uh, the elderly, the parents of the ones that had the past and the whites and children. So one day my aunt was getting ready because her name appeared. First, they liquidated the people that came from different cities like Kalish or Lodge. And my uh, uh, and they registered, of course, everyone. So the people from Zeshov were not the first ones to go to Belzec. So one day there was a, a names of the people that they wanted to come to the square with a promise that if you come, We'll take care of your children and you will get a job. And they, of course, wanted a job because of exploration. And uh, so my aunt was getting ready to go to work with a little boy in her arms. He was a beautiful little boy named Moses, Moshe. And beautiful white hair with blue eyes. And she had him in the arms. And my mother begged her. Take my little girl, too, because I don't want to leave her alone because there was no children anymore left. Mostly they were workers. And um, she said, how can I? I I have a baby in my hand, a purse in the other. I'll be right back. That's what they told them. In the meantime, when they arrived there, they surrounded the square with with guards and, and rifles. And they sat there from morning in the biggest heat until four o'clock without food or water. And when the babies cried, they bayoneted them. They threw them against the, the sadists that were the, over the, the Gestapo in the ghetto. They were the worst uh, murderers. And they did it for fun. So they bayoneted the children in mother's arms so they would throw them against. And I have a book that was written by a Polish teacher who knew what was going on in the ghetto because you could see it. And he describes that the German women who lived there with their spouses were outside. And some of them went into shock when they saw what was going on and they had to be transported to to a uh, uh, hospital. And later on, the Germans were saw what was happening on the outside, so they tried not to do that. But the first transport, that's, that's what happened. And then when people couldn't walk anymore, the elderly couldn't walk to the trains at four o'clock, they would shoot them. So that was the worst thing that started in, in ghetto in the work the work ghetto under false pretense. And then my uncle came from work and when he heard that the wife was transported, he ran after the train but couldn't catch up. That was my mother's brother. And that night, there was the men lament, lamented all night. The cries were to, went up to heaven, he said, because their wives and babies were gone or their parents. And then in, in Cleveland, there was a note. Stop me when you want me to stop, please. No, please continue. This is very interesting. Okay. Yeah. 
In Cleveland, I was an interviewer for Spielberg. I did 28 interviews, hoping because my mother died so early in my 30s in Cleveland, hoping that there was somebody be there from my from Jeshuv or Kalish. And it so happened that later on, a few years ago, I met the man that was in Jeshuv and he was in Kalish. And I did not get to interview him. I mostly interviewed Hungarian people and he was interviewed by somebody else. I have his tape, as a matter of fact. And uh, so he told me later when we befriended and we talked that he worked in the workshop where all the clothing came back from Belzec, where they were guests immediately. And he found his mother's coat. And so that panic started because they knew already that they were sent to Belzec. Also, the conductor came back and he told them what happened. The first transport where my aunt and baby went and my little cousin, had she taken me with her, I would have been there. So she refused, and I was so sad when I looked up. I said, take me, take me. I didn't say it, but I just wished she would take me. I didn't want to be in the whole apartment alone. And uh, there was 20 people in the apartment, in one apartment, but they all went to work. They all had to work. So uh, uh, the the word spread that they were gassed. The, the gas chamber didn't work yet. So they were gassed and immediately after they arrived, after three days of no water in the biggest heat closed up, they arrived there and they were gassed on the black vans immediately. So the second transport, the second, uh, so then my mother saw her name appear on the sheet on the plaque uh, with my name on it, she decided that she'll find a place for me to hide outside the ghetto. And she made arrangements with this woman the next day we were supposed to go. So she made arrangements with a Polish woman uh, to take me. And she put some money into my little coat. I remember I had a green coat. And uh, went to the guard because they knew my mother already, the police. At the, at the, there were two, two entrances. That one was to work, and the other one was uh, into the ghetto. So ghetto B and ghetto A, and we were ghetto A. And they knew my mother. And she begged them. She says, I don't have where to leave my little girl. Can I take her with me? And they said, okay. And then she came and took me. And as soon as we marched out of the ghetto, and the gendarmes and the police was escorting us, but they were you know, just watching the group to go to work. My mother pointed to this woman and she says, slowly go over to her. I slowly walked over to her, took my hand, took me to an apartment nearby where she lived. And I remember it was on the main floor and she locked all the windows and she said, now you stay here till I come back. I cried all day. When I heard the lock unlock, I jumped to her to the to her and cried and cried. I want to go back to the my parents. So she did. She took me by the hand and she walked around the open fences and she asked if they know where the Grossmans live. Somebody must have known and she pointed to the house. There was an opening underneath the fence 
and she pushed me through and I ran to my our apartment because I was seven and a half already then. And so I knew where I lived. And um, my father was in bed. My mother was not home yet because she had a night shift outside working for cleaning up after the the uh, high officers club. When they left, she would clean up after them. And she she put down her armband so they didn't know that she was Jewish. That was a job where she would bring in a piece of bread or butter or eggs and, and sell it in the ghetto so she could raise a few dollars, a few zloty to give it to this Polish woman. Well, the Polish woman took everything out. There was no more money in my coat. But when my mother walked in and, uh, oh, so when I came into the apartment, my father was in bed already. There were 20 people, like I mentioned, but the bedroom had a few people. And my father was in bed. And when he saw me, he stretched his arm and I ran into his arm giggling. And I fell asleep with him. And my he was so happy to see me. And then my mother came in from work. It was midnight. And she knew the very next day we were supposed to register to go to the to the uh, uh, square. It's called, called Zammelplatz. And there is where my first aunt and little baby, what happened to them, they already knew that they're being evacuated to Belgium to a, a destination where they were gassed. That's where the rumors already spread. And so my mother knew she wasn't going to go. And so again, she went to the gate and I was still dressed, except I had that little red green coat. I guess I, I don't know if I was dressed in that when I fell asleep. I don't remember. But I was so happy to be in my father's arms. I giggled and I jumped into his arms. And well, when my mother came and she saw me and I looked at her, I woke up and I looked at her and my father and she turned white. She didn't know what to do. So all night she was looking for a hiding place in the ghetto, in the building. Couldn't find it. So in the morning at five, just when it was still dark, she went to the gate and asked them. She says, I need to take my girl. And they didn't know about it. Uh, the police didn't know it at, at that gate. And uh, she said, I need to take my little girl. I don't have where to leave her. And they said, okay. She came and dressed me. And as soon as we reached with a, with a group, group uh, which was the uh, uh, escorted group to work, she was on the outside of the group where the, the police was not exactly on, on her side. And she took my hand and... She ran with me into a Catholic cemetery. And we were hiding behind the stones until it was getting light. It was getting light. She ran across the street from the cemeteries where the Polish overseer uh, lived. And uh, after some horrendous times, because he was asleep and my mother couldn't, you know, she knocked on the door and he didn't hear us. Finally, she pushed the door, the door opened, and he said, lay down, and went looking for a hiding place for me to hide with his family while my mother went to say goodbye to my father. And uh, when she went to her aunts, to her sisters, and and uh, my father said to her, save yourself, you're blonde, and, and uh, Ruja is blonde, save yourselves. 
And uh, then she went to say goodbye to my aunt, and her name was Ruja, and uh, Belusha, she had this, my little cousin Belusha, and she said to my mother, take my little girl too. And my mother said, how can I? I don't even know if I can save my own child. And uh, from then on, we were running to Warsaw and hiding places and so many different places. And she found this righteous uh, family in, in Warsaw who, uh, Adam Jacques, and his son was 21. He was in the underground. And Hanka was six years old, and she became like my sister. And, and today, when my mother couldn't find places to hide me, she would, uh, Hanka would go with me as my sister. And uh, she took care of me more than my mother, really. She washed my hair. She dressed me. And uh, if they would have found out that I was Jewish, which they did, and but luckily, they, before they gave me away, they told the family, if you don't send her away, we'll give you, give you away. So immediately we had to, she knew how to call her father. He worked in a bank. And uh, they would send out somebody to tell us where to meet him and so on. So it was like so many places. I can't describe everything in detail, what was happening while I was on the run. I was hiding in closets. Uh, when I came to visit Hanka and, and uh, Mr. Jacques, and my mother was a housekeeper there, and they entertained family and friends. My mother was the, the housekeeper. She would cook and serve. I would have, if they didn't have a place of hiding for me, they would take me to their apartment. I was happy because my mother was there. But after a while, I didn't know who she was, whether because I had to call her aunt or missus, uh, all kinds of, but not mother. I was not allowed to call her mother. So when I was with the Jacques family, I knew there was my mother, but I had to hide in a bedroom. There was a wardrobe and I had, there was a pillow for me and I had to sit there until midnight till the company left. So that was just one of the episodes. So, you know, there's so much in my emotional, my, uh, my mother came to visit. I, I wasn't allowed to call her mother. I had to say she's a missus that's taking care of me uh, because her uh, sister is in England. You know, all kinds of excuses. My mother had a Polish passport. But being that I had curly hair and somebody would find out that I wasn't playing with the children, they would tell their parents. The parents would write a letter if you don't send her away, we'll give you away. So, of course, you know, the Polish people had also to deal with it because they would be shot as well. So, uh, especially, you know, in Warsaw, they they uh, uh, would send them to Auschwitz, some of them, like my righteous Gentile son, who worked, was in the underground. They caught him and they sent him to Auschwitz and we never heard from, they never heard from him. Can you please explain to me what the underground is? The, the Polish army Krajowa, there was uh, where they were fighting the Germans. But when they lost the war to the Germans, a lot of them ran away to England, and they formed undergrounds. Even some underground, they were they hated the Jews, so they wouldn't accept them into the underground, or they would kill them if a Jewish guy wanted to to uh, uh, join them. They, they was terrible. They, they didn't want any, Jew, any Jews there to eat, so they hated the Jews as well. But they were fighting for the, for the rights of the Poles. 
like the Polish uprising that happened in 1944, uh, where thousands were killed. That was after the Jewish, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. So they finally uh, did their own uprising. But so the Armia Krajowa was a, uh, called Zabita, Zabita. And uh, they, were, they were for the Jews, uh, but they were in England. And a few of them went willingly or were caught, young people, uh, by the Nazis, and they were sent to, to Auschwitz, but some of them escaped. And or they, would, they would send letters to England to tr- tell them to, to uh, bomb the tracks, which they never did. They send it to the USA, to America, and they send it to England and France. And no, even though they bombed not far from Auschwitz and munitioned the plane factories, they did not bomb the railroad tracks. But they were, so though this was a group that was helping to save Jews. And actually, the, the, uh, one of the, own, the members who was in Auschwitz, he sent all kinds of letters. Uh, warning of what was happening in Auschwitz. And he was also the one that in, was instrumental in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, enabling the, uh, the, the Jewish uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto. And they also were sending some ammunition, but there was not enough for them and for the ghetto uprising. So uh, he was, he is actually, I just read the story, he was uh very the Russians sent him after the war, he was imprisoned, and the Russians sent him to prison and he was ten years in prison, then he became a, a diplomat in all kinds of different uh, uh high ranking positions and he was actually a journalist too and he died in nine, two of two fifteen and uh he became a citizen of Israel. Israel made him a citizen. He was Polish. But uh, there was a woman in this group that saved 2,000 children. I don't know if you read that. Uh, they smuggled 2,000 children out of the Warsaw Ghetto by hiding them in a wagon. And she was tortured by the German Gestapo in Paviat, which was the most horrible place of torture and wanted to know where she placed the Jewish children and she wouldn't give them away. But the underground saved her, smuggled her out of there. So those are, you know, stories I'm very much involved and I read a lot and I'm on Facebook a lot. And I myself became like a historian. But the sad part is that when my mother was running away with me from Jeshuv, took a train to Warsaw and, uh, she had pictures with her, and I guess she was so afraid that if they catch her, they'll see the pictures that she was carrying, and some of them are her parents and her sisters and the whole family. And uh, uh, she destroyed them. She flushed them down the toilet. That's what she said. And so I don't have a picture of, I only have one picture that survived in Israel of my aunt. And my uncle came back, who was guests. They were all guests. And my uncle that came, that survived, when my uncle and my father were left the last ones in the ghetto, the working camp, they separated my father to one side and my uncle to the other. 
So my uncle wanted to stay with my father, not knowing where they were going. And he went over to my father's side. And the German SS, who my father, my uncle worked for as a locksmith, he liked him. And he said to him, what are you doing there? Out, go back to this. So he knew that my father was going to be sent to either Belgium or Auschwitz or killed because they saw, saw they killed in the forest near near Zeshuf, they killed 3,000 people right in the beginning. And they took him by, by, uh, uh, by wagons, transported him there and, and made him undress and dug their graves and, and killed, shot them all. I was in that forest. I visited it. There's a monument there. 3,000 from one ghetto. There were eventually there were 50,000 in the ghetto Jeshuk. So you can imagine uh, the typhoid epidemic, the hunger, and uh, I I visualized a lot of it. I saw a lot of it. I was about one of the children that was no children. They were all hiding. So I had I was walking on the street by myself because everybody was at work. Nobody told us, nobody told our ch- the children what was going on. And then, of course, I didn't see Belusha anymore because she was in the other ghetto and we were not allowed to go to Part B. We were not allowed to visit. Anyway, so when they separated, my father, my uncle wound up in two different camps and liberated in Mutthausen, which was the, the worst of the ghettos, of the camps, without Auschwitz. And... Uh, uh, my father, unknown, either he was sent the last tra- transport to Je- to Auschwitz, or he was shot because they took those people to a, where they built the airplanes, and they worked them to death, actually to death. So I don't know exactly now where my father. Or they took the rest of the ghetto Jews and took them to the Jewish cemetery and shot thousands of them there. So. And I don't even have a single picture of my father. My mother didn't have. And after the war, the, we returned back to college right after the war. I was, I was liberated with Hanka and my mother in Warsaw. And we came back to our own apartment. We were told because the German SS, the Hauptgeneral of college, took over our apartment. Because my mother had everything custom-made furniture. It was magnificent. And a short time we lived there. And I remember my white bedroom set, lacquered with blue satin curtains and blue satin sides and lace curtains and the same blue satin coverlet. And um, I remember that because after the war, the Polish people told us who took it. They, they cleaned it out as soon as the German ran away. When the Russians were approaching, he ran away, left everything intact. And so the Polish people took it over, took over whatever they wanted. My mother got the bedroom set back. They told us who had it and my bedroom set back. And our library, which was also. Uh, and the curtains were still there. So we came back to our own place and waited for my family to return. At that point, we didn't know who was alive. We still were hoping that my father, because what got me through the war, was thinking my father was going to come to my rescue. That was keeping me going. 
And because I, my mother was not a mother anymore to me, I didn't know what, where I belonged and why I had to hide and my mother didn't have to hide and so on. So my only hope was my father and, of course, you know, my aunt. So in 1945, we came back to our own place right as soon as the Russians occupied Poland. And um, this woman that came, that lived with us, said one day, Mrs. Grossman, there's somebody looking up with a knapsack on my back. And I ran to the balcony. I thought it was my father. It was my uncle. He's the only one that returned. The only one. And from my whole entire family. And then one day, my cousin, she was 16 years old, survived the Warsaw Ghetto, survived camps at 16 she was liberated and she came to look for family in college and of course there was nobody left because her family also lived in college uh her father's family and uh uh she went to lodge and from lodge they they back they the haganah or the jewish underground smuggled whoever wanted to go to palestine especially the young people so she went with them. So she was a pioneer that went to Israel at 16. And we lost touch with her. But when we lived in Cleveland, we found out, we corresponded, and we brought them all here, the whole family, and uh, their daughter and son. And their daughter was five, and the boy was 12. And they lived with us for a while, and they lived in Cleveland for a while, and they went to college and graduated and went back to Israel. So um, my cousin is a painter now, and uh, uh, my my uh, and uh, my cousin's daughter and my cousin's son, Aaron, became an educator, and he was second in command of all of uh, Israeli education until he retired at 70. And uh, retired in his 60s, actually, and uh, he's 70 now, I think. So uh, my mother died in 1970, shortly after my son's bar mitzvah, suddenly. So we never talked about it. So um, her, her story went with her. She was always depressed and sick. And uh, uh, at that time, I was in my 20s and early 30s, and I didn't ask many questions. And uh, my uncle died. He was 94 in Cleveland. I became his caretaker. And uh, we were going to have him interviewed for Spielberg because I was not allowed to do it. And he was in an old age home and the last seven years of his life. And he uh, didn't want to talk much about it except when they came, they found some, from Mauthausen, this, uh, 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 one of the, the, the guard, the policeman, who was uh, uh, caught here in the United States, and there was, or in Germany, and he was on trial, and they wanted, to, so the FDA came, I think the FBI came, I don't know, FDA. Uh, the government people they sent to interview my uncle and told them about Matthausen and how they were dressed and he recognized somebody. So, but he didn't want to talk much about it. 
and he was a very depressed man because uh, what happened to his whole family and especially his wife and little baby. Baby was about two years old. And so we were going to interview him, but they didn't want me to interview him. They wanted somebody stranger to interview him. And they were looking for somebody that spoke Jewish, and which was a big mistake because I could have been a translator. Finally, they found somebody that spoke Jewish, and I was in Florida at the time. And when I came back, he had pneumonia and was never in, he passed away and was never interviewed. So with him went my whole life's history. Then my my cousin in Israel, I said to her. She, she was, I have her story, but uh, she was 13 when her parents died in her arms in Warsaw Ghetto of hunger and typhoid. And she was left with two little siblings. And she took them to Krakow to her other aunt. Her aunt couldn't feed them, so she gave the two little ones to an to a, a orphanage. And the Germans came and cleaned out the whole orphanage and send them all to Auschwitz. So she was the only one that survived at 16. Is there a message that you would like to give to the younger generations? Well, you saw the film, right? CBS? Yes. You saw that? It was my grandson that was tattooed? Yeah. Okay. So what message can I say to the younger generations? I spoke in schools. Here in the temple, our temple had this woman made a little museum and she uh, brought and they bust children from different schools to this temple in Beechwood. And my husband and I spoke many times there. And the emotional and the, the, it, it was just unbelievable the letters that they send us afterwards. And they were like 50, 60, 70. And there was a, you know, they would ask me questions. And my husband, separate, we talked separately, different times. So I would like something like this to continue after the Kavod. And I would like the schools to be able to explain what it is, what, what it was, what the Nazis' aim was, why did they, they, First, it started with looting, burning synagogues, and and then they started with the transports. Why? Because they were able to, to, first of all, they spread the hate all over Europe. The Jews were not uh, particularly uh, welcome in many European, like Russia, like like uh, uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainians hated the Jews, they hated the Poles too. So as soon as the Germans marched in, they became Germans. And they they slaughtered the Jews and the Poles. Um, the Poles that used to live and had citizenship in Ukraine. Uh, why the Jews? They just made war on the Jews. There was a, there was a, a uh, uh, his passion, his, his I don't know. I mean, it was it was like if he wouldn't concentrate on the Jews as much, maybe he would have won the war. But they were so busy with the the, the killing squads and the, the the murder 
and Auschwitz that they 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 forgot about the war. They they just it was an annihilation of the Jewish people, and the ones that tried to save Jews were treated the same way as the Jews. They were hanged. They were killed immediately. Families, whole families with their children were massacred. And they had the collaborators. In Poland, there was a lot of collaboration. And, and they didn't care, the collaborators, that their Polish friends and families would die as well. So there was so much hatred. And it came a lot from churches, not all churches, churches, the Catholics. I mean, where the hate came from, I don't know, because they were the, the, in Warsaw, in Lodz, in, in my father's whole family was from Lodz. He had three sisters, brother-in-laws, they all died. From my father's side, nobody survived except my 16-year-old uh, niece. That's it. But they concentrated on, on the Jews. And the gas chambers, Treblinka. I mean, they were afraid that if ch the child survives, that means they could multiply. They could have children. And the Jews would be again multiplying. I, have, I just hope that the schools and the teachers would get together again like it used to be, where the Holocaust was taught in schools, was taught in... Uh, in uh, 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 schools and and there was a curriculum to read certain books like the mouse right now my children read the mouse Ellie Wiesel's book my children let, uh, read in high school in the 60s so this should be back, brought back and anti-semitism I believe that, um, that America is smarter than that that they would not, they're, they're minorities. There are like the Ku Klux Klan, like the, the, the uh, white supremacists. But it, it's, and, and, you know, it's, I don't feel that it's going to happen. I'm not afraid. Of course, we're, we're the older generation. But I just feel that, uh, that education, educating, educating, educating will help uh, to live together and see each other as human beings instead of of different we can have different cultures different views different temples synagogues uh, churches but we all pray to the same God is in all of us all of us when I prayed my mother whispered a prayer to me and when she left and I knew that I have to say that prayer every single night before I go to sleep or I may not wake up tomorrow. So I don't know there was a God. Then I also prayed that my father will come and rescue me. But I didn't know there was a God or a person or what. All I could hear is Hitler, Hitler, the Jews, the Jews. I heard Hitler speaking about the Jews. I didn't even know what Jews are because we were such a modern family. My grandparents were. My grandfather was very uh, uh, modern. He was not, he didn't wear payas or, you know, the, the regular rabbinic uh, attire. He was very modern. And uh, he was, uh, I think, maybe from Germany, too, because he was uh, blonde, blue-eyed. The whole family was blonde, blue-eyed, my mother's son. 
And uh, so I didn't even know what it meant to be Jewish. Yet I was afraid of Hitler, petrified. I remember in one place on a farm, Hanka and I were in that, they were distant cousins and they kept us. It was a little, little town. And there was a lake. And they said to we went to the lake on Sunday and they said, why don't you go swimming? Well, I didn't know what the swimming was because we didn't have a swimming pool. There was a lake, but it was swans, but that's all I remember in, in a park. But there was no swimming there. And so I didn't, I didn't want to go in. So they said to, to Hanka, my righteous Gentile who was six years older, if I knew she's not your sister, I would say she's Jewish. There's certain views that they had about the Jews, black hair, black eyes, that, that automatically made my father wouldn't escape because he had black hair and black eyes. So he wouldn't escape because he knew he didn't have a chance outside. So I remember in that little house, they, they had one big living room. There was a kitchen and one big room. And in that room, the whole family slept. Their son, their sons, the couple, Hanka and I had a little bed. At night, one night, there was a huge knock on the door. The, the man went out to open the door. And they came in, brown shirts with a, a swastika, with those brown hats. And everybody thought they came for me. If they came for me, I knew everybody would be shot. I mean, they, they knew that they'll be shot. So they, they uh, so I sneaked under the blanket. Under the blanket, I was hiding. Nobody said to go under the blanket. Hanka didn't tell me. Automatically, I slid. I knew they came for me. Well, they, they uh, took their lanterns and they were, uh, uh, you know, showing, uh, uh, they were uh, putting their lights on everybody and they saw their son and they took him out. He must have been in the underground, a very handsome guy. Uh, they took him out and they never heard from him again. And then one day in that same town, I was walking on the street by myself and I see this brown shirt. And I knew that if I bent down, he'll suspect me. So I looked right at him like I was a Polish child. And he passed me by. But the fear, you know, holding my breath, is I'm still holding my breath till today. Why? And I never figured it out till the last few years. Then it was when I was hiding in a closet. I was hiding my, my, my fear away by holding my breath. And... Uh, same thing when I saw the Germans on the street, I was holding my breath. So the fear of, of being a Jewish child and, and out on the open sometimes, you know, just stayed with me. But I'm not afraid. The fear did not take me. I was never afraid to, to go places, to by myself, to drive. Uh, but... Inside, you know, it took a psychological, uh, affected me psychologically. But I was not afraid. So I'm not afraid today. I'm not afraid of what's going to be. I'm worried that uh, other European countries, uh, but, you know, I feel also very strong about Israel. And I feel as long as we have Israel, nothing can happen to us because we have a country. And so 
Whatever happens in Israel happens to me. I always wanted to live in Israel. It so happened I didn't. I wish my parents would have gone there. My mother remarried in Germany, and uh, then I knew my father. But I was 21 years old when we went, and I was married, and we went to New York, and we walked in Brooklyn, and I was still hoping my father would recognize me. So I never, it never ended that my father was someplace alive. But I kept it to myself. I never talked to my mother about it, or, you know until the first conference, World Conference of Hidden Children, took place at the Marriott, New York. And some two and a half thousand of us came together. That was the first World Conference. And I remember I had pneumonia, but I crawled out and I went to the conference. Elie Wiesel was speaking at the time, and uh, uh, all the photographers and and writers and psychiatrists and psychologists, they all came together at that time. And it was like heaven opened up because we were all crying, you know, men, women, because their parents wouldn't talk to them, their mothers wouldn't talk to them about it. And a lot of them went into psychology because of that. But uh, uh, that's when we, that's when I joined this group and I'm on the uh, board of, now it became the Child World Federation of Jewish Child Survivors of the Holocaust. And I'm on the executive board. But unfortunately, we, every year we used to go and gather and they had workshops with therapists. And we used to work out on our uh on ourselves, we used to work. Uh, Gavi, as a matter of fact, went to Vancouver when we had the, the last conference before COVID, and he asked my husband if he, it's okay uh, to if he would mind if he had a tattoo. And uh, my husband, it's up to you. And that's how it happened that he wanted the tattoo from two years ago when he went to a workshop with. Um, the Holocaust survivors, second and third generation. I did not attend that uh, meeting, but this is how we healed. That since 1992, we had three conferences in Israel. Uh, it first it started as Hidden Children, then it became a World Conference of Child Survivors, and so now it's second and third generation uh, who come to that. And unfortunately, for two years, it was supposed to be in uh, St. Louis, and we couldn't make it. Uh, because of COVID, so we are do- just zooming it. So that's it. And well, um, I always thought when well, my husband's story was more important, so we didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it. He, I never knew his history. He didn't know mine. We come from two different worlds and uh, different places, different upbringing. He was survived with his three sisters, thank God, and. Uh, they have their children, and my husband was the only brother. They have three sisters, so they all survived, but not his parents. And some of this, his uncle survived, some of his uh, uncle survived, so um, he had a larger family. I only had my my mother, my stepfather, who was also lost three children in, uh, in uh, Treblinka, and he survived with his brother out of four brothers and a sister. And so my mother married him in Munich. In Munich, they established a school in 1946. And we smuggled from when the first pogrom in Kelsa happened in 1945. Uh, we were back in our apartment. We probably would have stayed a while 
because we, you know, headed back and uh, uh, I was happy to be back in our own apartment in college and waiting our family to come back. At that point, I was nine and nine years old. And um, immediately after the war, we went back to our apartment in college from Warsaw. And uh, uh, there was a pogrom in Kielce where they killed 40, 50 people, the uh, a Polish uh, underground, uh, Armia Krajowa, they call themselves, I think. I'm not one of them. And they murdered them. They threw him off balcony. The, all the survivors that came back to Kelsa, to their hometown, stayed in one building. And they they kind of, it was a terrible tragedy what happened. They murdered them. They threw them off balconies. There's a big monument for them now in Kelsa, which was a shameful thing for Poland. Uh, so as soon as my mother found out and the Jews found out what happened, they were afraid that it's going to come to the to college and other towns. They all started running away. My mother and Hanka and my uncle and my mother went to a town near where it used to belong to Germany called Gerlitz. And there, the underground, the Haganah would smuggle them by boats to the American zone. So my mother knew about it, found out. And she took us there. I mean, we went there, hoping that Hanka, my righteous Gentile, would come with us. Um, and my mother went back to Warsaw to say goodbye to Adam Jacques. And after a few weeks in um, Gerlitz, uh, again, I was alone with Hanka, and then my uncle was there. We awaited, my mother came back, and at night they smuggled all the survivors to by boats to the American zone. And from there, we arrived in Munich. In 1946, uh, the UNRWA established a Hebrew school in Munich and uh, with he, uh, surviving teachers. Oh, that used to be teachers before the war. And that's when we all started, um, you know, coming out, you may say so. Our first Purim. Uh, bowl, and uh, but nobody, none of them ever talked to us about psychologically about where we were, what happened, nothing. So we were continuing like nothing happened, and that was the the worst thing that could have happened to children at that time. Because even though I had very close friends and I have a lot of tons of pictures, and I'm still in touch with some of my friends, uh, we formed bonds. In 1951, the UNRWA liquidated the school because most immigrants immigrated, and a lot of them were orphans. So they went to Preen, where it was an orphanage, and then from there they went to Palestine. They came to actually groom us to go to Palestine, and my mother and father decided they didn't want to go to Palestine. My stepfather, they they wanted to register to Australia or America, and. Uh, so my mother sent me to a private school in Switzerland when the school closed up in 51. And I was supposed to be there for two years. It was a private, beautiful school in French section of Switzerland. A very high polluting uh, our children of families, rich families were there. And uh, six months later, I was just beginning to 
come out and have friends and have, because I didn't want to leave my mother again, but uh, she wanted me to go there. So I begged her. I sent letters. I want to come back to Munich. I want to come back to Munich. And then all of a sudden I got to, was getting used to it. I got, you know, befriended some, some boys and girls and became like a nice circle of friends. It was an Orthodox school, by the way, it was called Usher. And they were very modern though. And we were just beginning to learn French when uh, my mother sent a telegram to come right away because our visa came to the United States. And that's about it. So now you know the story. Join me next time when I talk to Muget Myers, who tells me her fascinating story. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. This is Eliane Goldstein. Tune in next time to The Effect on Us. And remember, history will not repeat itself. Bye.